So today we have a guest. We do. Dr. David Deemer is a writer and scholar whose focus is on film philosophy. Yep, he has a couple books out. He is the author of Deleuze's Cinema Books, Three Introductions to the Taxonomy of Images, and Deleuze in Japanese Cinema and the Atom Bomb, The Spectre of Impossibility. We have a lot to ask him. Oh yeah, we're going to get into the role of film philosophy in society, the kind of movies that we might be seeing more of in the future, you know, the shapes that entertainment has taken throughout history, answering some, some of the big questions. Very cool stuff. Yep, we're pretty excited. He is our first guest with a PhD. Yep, influencers, doctors, we have it all here. What's going to happen? Yes, we do. Although we should wait to name drop um, until we actually introduce the show. Oh, yeah, my bad. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm Evangelia. And I'm Emily. And welcome to What's Gonna Happen. Hello, Dr. David Deemer. It's nice to meet oh, you. Very nice <laughs> to meet you, Evangelina. And that must be Emily there as well. Yes, Hi there. hello. Yes. Nice to meet you. Well, so let's talk a little bit about your expertise. You know, what is film philosophy and um, why is there a hyphen there? You're quite right to talk about, about the hyphen. We usually call it film hyphen philosophy. And really what we're talking about there is film and philosophy bringing film and philosophy together. I mean, there's three kind of ways in which people do this. Um, one would be, and you can probably imagine this is quite normal, that philosophers um, use films as examples, you know? So they've got a difficult philosophical concept. They want to kind of get across to their students. And um, they may use a film as a uh, as an example so a good one would be you're trying to talk about plato's cave from the ancient greeks and um, um you would use a film like logan's run where they go into a cave and come out of a cave and you can start illustrating it for your students and talking that way that's not what i do um, <laughs> um because to me that's really just using film as a tool to teach philosophy. So that's not film philosophy. That's not film and philosophy as far as I'm concerned. Another one would be analysis. You know, so here I am. I'm a philosopher and I've been trained in the keen philosophic arts and I'm going to look at this film by a filmmaker and I'm going to analyse it and tell you exactly what it's about scrape beneath the skin, get down there and, you know, tell you what's really going on. Um, I don't do that either. <laughs> I, to be brutally honest, I think that that kind of attitude towards films has, has a number of bad effects. One is mm. essentially saying that the filmmaker don't know what they're doing, you know. That, uh, and why, does, why does that mean that? Well, it's going it, to... Uh, you need me, the philosopher, to tell you what's really going on. I see. You know, <laughs> it's not enough for you just to go there and watch the film. And You like this film. Let me tell you why you shouldn't. Hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It tends to be a very negative kind of experience. You know, 
you're there, oh, look, oh, it looks okay on the surface, but deep, deep down beneath, these horrible desires are, are bubbling away, and I'll expose them for you. And t- I think the, like, heavy critique and, you know, like, high-level academic analysis can sometimes, like, defile films because, like, something that makes them so engaging and so able to communicate heavy topics is the nuance, and it sounds like some of what you're saying has to do with, you know, when you strip down the nuance and just kind of like assign these philosophical concepts, sometimes we can lose what makes a movie so emotionally engaging. I think that's a, that's, that's another really good way of looking at it, you know, over-intellectualizing it and not dealing with the affects that come from the screen and the feeling and stuff like that. I think that's that's a really astute comment. That wasn't what I was getting at, but I, but I'll oh, add okay. that one to my. But I will <laughs> add that. But I will add that one to my list. I think that's a really good point. Um, I call it cinephobia, playing mm-hmm. with words as in cinema phobia, cinephobia, or cynicism, cynicism. Where, I like that word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like creating new words. Um, but for me, what film and philosophy is about is taking some cinema, taking some philosophy, rubbing them together, seeing what sparks come out and allowing the film to lead you in a direction to think about the philosophy and using the philosophy to think about the film and go backwards and forwards, resonances. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, I think sometimes by looking at the film through some, a, a piece of philosophy, finding the right philosophy to look at the film, yeah, not just... Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm a psychoanalyst, so every film's about wanting to kill your dad and fuck your mom. Everything (laughs) to me is about, well, and that or like death. Right. Sex and death is everything. Sex with your, sex, like an an edible complex usually makes its way (laughs) into the conversation. My parents are both dead, so that's sex and death. Yeah, there you go. Um, Yeah, I mean, it sounds, I think. For sure, instead of watching a film with the kind of moral checklist using philosophy, like versus looking at something through the lens of philosophy, like that allow that second one allows for a lot more room and more freedom and more open conversation instead of like just deeming something something it's less negative. Yeah, much less negative, much more open. I think like having a lot of like long form kind of conversation about media is something that we're losing with like the way that a lot of conversations are had now you know well we're bleeding nuance by the second I mean it's all just (laughs) flying out the window so that's why it's important to talk about things in an open yeah context and and, uh, and I'd, I'd go even further with that with the film philosophy link in that you know sometimes the film changes the philosophy too so it's not just about the domination of philosophy on film but allowing the film um a film uh, a philosopher who, do, who wrote a couple of book on um on on film um was to, uh, called Gilles Deleuze was was really interested in the way in which cinema changed the way in which he thought about the philosophy that he was writing about so it's you you mentioned the word lens and that's particularly apt and I think they become a lens on each other and Mm. create a kind of a feedback loop resonances and 
And it allows you to, so I don't really call myself film philosopher. I just call myself a writer because I write and I write about films and I write about philosophy and I write history and politics and I just mix it all up in any way that I wish. Um, does cinema need philosophy? No-ish. I mean, uh, again, I mentioned um, the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze who wrote on cinema. He, he said to think that cinema needs philosophy is comical. Mm. Uh, you know, um, does a sculptor need philosophy? Does uh, a musician need philosophy? Let's keep, keep, keep multiplying the arts and think that now. But that's not to say, right, that you can't have some really great adventures by putting film and philosophy together. You know, by bringing the two together and, and you create something new, you create hybrid, hence that hyphen. Yeah, you create a hybrid kind of... And cinema itself is hybrid, yeah? It's scripts, it's um, sets and scenery, usually architecture from cities. It's actors, or meat puppets, as I call them. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of those things. It's uh, music, blah, 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 all of that. So mm -hmm. it becomes a kind of hybrid. And, you know, a lot of directors that have... That have sometimes get annoyed with film theorists, film philosophers. Uh, Alan Parker, the director, once said, um, film needs theory like a camera needs a scratch on the lens. He was a writer as well, you can tell. But equally, you know, throughout history, film filmmakers have often been film philosophers, film writers. Sergei Eisenstein from the Soviet Union, uh, Pasolini from Italy, Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver, wrote a wonderful book on cinema, Robert Bresson, France, Andrew, uh, Andrei Tartofsky from Russia, famous for Solaris, um, Laura Mulvey, who's probably the most read film theorist on the planet, um, was a filmmaker, people often forget that, um, Trinity Maha, who were, who's a Vietnamese um, writer, she she's now prof in in I want to say Pennsylvania. I've probably got that wrong. Um, was is a filmmaker still making films? Maya Darren. So it doesn't need it, but it is what it is. It's like saying, do we need? It's the same question. Do we need cinema? No. But isn't it great that we? Isn't it great that we do have a cinema? Mary Beard, because she's a, a UK academic, said, um, "What ask the question? What is the role of a modern academic?" And she said, it's to make things more complicated. <laughs> it's, it's to make things less simple. And I, I mean, I would add to that, uh, just to affirm it, that it's a job of certain kinds of politicians to make things simple. Here's the simple answer. This is what we need to do. Yep. And it's a job of an academic to go, hold your horses, mate. Um, Things were a lot more complicated than that. I endorse that. I endorse always making things as complicated as possible. Yes, I do that everybody. in my head always. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the biggest ways you think film affects culture? Just general mass culture. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about politicians. We're talking about, you know, academics. We're talking about, you know, philosophers and filmmakers. And these are all people who have, like, heavy weight on what goes on in culture. So we're curious kind of about, like, what you think of, like, film as an institution, film as an art form. Like, what, yeah, what do you think some of the biggest ways film affects culture? I, I suppose the, the first thing to say is that 
film is culture. Film, you know, it's part of culture. It's um, one of the, the problems we always have is we think we can stand outside of something and look in on it. But there is no standing outside the world. There is no standing outside of our heads. So film is culture. That being said, you know, how, how does the film explore the culture? It, I mean, on one hand, it's necessarily part of culture, and so it's going to necessarily explore the culture from which it emerges. So you, you've got a kind of feedback loop or vicious circle sometimes, yeah, when the filmmakers perhaps aren't conscious of what they do. And film, you know, can radically affect the way way people think about the world in which they live. Um, when VCRs first came out, uh, one of the biggest markets was horror films. And in the UK, they were known as video nasties on all of the red top. It's a very UK way. Of yeah, that, of course, <laughs> they would call it video nasty. Yeah, it's a, it's a great term. Even if... Um, and, they, you know, they were worried about the morality of these things getting out there into the world. Little kids being able to just slot them into, you know, it's, we have watershed in the UK or did back then after nine o'clock. You know, you can show anything. But before that, kids could be around. The video nasties just destroyed that. You know, what would we say now? They disrupted that model. Um, and one of the arguments against this was, you know, um, no, no, film does nothing. You know, it's not going to affect the way people think. And there was a couple of murders. We had a terrible murder case of two little boys killed another little boy. Um, and, of course, this heightened the whole conversation about it. Now, does art affect life? Well, there's a little book called The Bible. That seems to have had quite an effect on, on, on the world and the way in which we live. So we know art affects life. But... You yeah, know, that's on my Goodreads than... list. It's I haven't gotten to it yet, but I've heard it's very impactful text. Oh, get the you should re read the uh, the Hebrew Bible. There's, that's the prequel. That's really good. And then yeah. they they got this sequel called the Quran. Awesome, you know, <laughs> brilliant trilogy. Uh, the the point there would be that I don't think you know people are inspired in that way. I, but I do think they give a form to culture. One of the one of the ways in which you look at old Hollywood films and one of the discourses we tend to have when we're teaching cinema is, you know, when you've got the man going out to work and the woman in the kitchen, this just is a feedback loop that reinforces gender stereotypes, yeah? Mm -hmm. And it's unthought, it's unthought. It's not anyone trying to do anything. It's just the unthought of society reinforcing itself, stereotypes embedding back, unquestioning round and round in a vicious circle. So I think that's one of the dangers that that, that film can um, affect culture. It can reinforce the stereotypes. Then you have certain films that want to break those stereotypes open and, and think about those things. Um, and, you know, from it, one way to think about this would be, you know, look back at the silent era of cinema. It's, it's really difficult to think about this now, but... No one thought anything was missing when there was no sound. That's a crazy thought. Yeah, yeah. for sure. They weren't like, why is this shit in black and white? You know, <laughs> change it up a little bit. It was just, we took it for what it is. Same as, you know, we didn't really question, like, the two-pixel movies that exist back then versus, like, Avatar, Way of Water. Now that is, like, this insane immersive experience. I wonder what 
is like what what are we missing that we don't oh, realize yeah. we, we're years, missing now the movies are going to come out and pat you on the head or something yeah <laughs> you're, you're, and you're exactly right in the sense that some filmmakers even resisted the coming of sound they thought it would ruin <laughs> cinema i was actually about to ask if people did that because i know that whenever there's a new technology people will say that this technology is ruining whichever medium it's affecting so i was wondering if when movies started to have sound people were like no movies can't have sound it's gonna ruin movies well p- uh, particularly in japan um there's a filmmaker called uh, uzu who made silent films for almost 10 years after the, the ability to put sound on. Hitchcock was one of the first actors. He actually refilmed some sequences of a film he just completed to put some sound in. So you've got kind of Hitchcock in, um, in, in England and Uzu in Japan taking completely different opinions on this. But the reason why I mention this is, is to think about, well, what did they think they were going to lose? And the idea, uh, and what they thought they were going to lose was a dance of images and the idea of mass communication. And this is the point I was going to get to about culture. If you've got a silent film, it can go anywhere in the world. And the exchange of films was one of the big first global industries across the world. You know, they were sent around and they could be shared. And what you, and, and people put narration over the top. There'd be a, somebody standing there speaking and telling you what to how to interpret the the images um so there's a way in which um culture can can talk different cultures can talk to each other and speak to each other across divides and the way in which they can open so is that then closed down by and it seems to me there's always these opening up and closing downs these territorializations, re-territorializations, dispersions, bringing back in at every level, at every scale, backwards and forwards. So thinking about that historically, culturally in uh, in a diverse area is really, really important. What do you think, I guess, about the current way that we consume film and, and media in general? I think a lot of it is consumed unconsciously on a roll and there's so much of it that it takes something really, really startling or different um, to jump out at us and really grab our attention. I don't, I'm not sure if that's good or bad. I'm happy or sad with that. I, I take more of a journalistic attitude rather than an activist. So the question's got to be, what do we, what grabs our attention? What do we get left with? You know, if we can, if we were to talk about filmmakers from 1950 Hollywood, we'd probably come out with about 10 that we think are really good. Yeah, there were hundreds and thousands and loads of films and things get, the chaff gets kind of put away the further we get away from stuff. I haven't got a clue how something explodes, how something catches the attention. If you go onto a platform like LinkedIn um, and or listen to people in communications industry, they'll write booklets and PowerPoints on how to get a post viral and how to do this and how to do that, you know. And, uh, you know, media companies, will, you know, will look at Squid Game and go, right, we've got to make something like that. And so, That's why people are kind of bored of going to the movies now is because everything is a sequel. Everything is a Marvel movie now. Um, what's your do you, opinion? Where do you st- well, now I'm going to ask you first. What's your <laughs> opinion on Marvel? You brought it up, mate. I... Are not you a with fan. Scorsese? Are you with Scorsese? Yeah. Or not? 
I would agree with him. I am not a fan of Marvel movies. I really, like, and for a long time I had never seen a Marvel movie. So I was like, you know, I I can't really say. But then I actually watched a Marvel movie, like, a year ago. And I was like, this is so bad. Like, <laughs> I mean, look, there are definitely some that I've appreciated more than others. And I think the ones that I like usually are breaking the mold of what a Marvel movie has kind of been historically. Like, I really liked Into the Spider-Verse um, because it kind of, like, redefined what a Marvel movie can be. And I, I appreciate, like, its return to, like, comics stylistically and the implementation of kind of more, a more collective journey, cross-universe kind of approach. Um, I do think a lot of it is, can be, like, kind of nationalistic kind of propaganda-y in a way. You know, there's a lot of things I see, you know, pieces of writing that I see that kind of dive into that. Um, that being said, I mean, I know that they make people happy. So similar to my views on institutionalized religion, I think, are my views on Marvel movie. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but I'm curious about what you think. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, do you know what? I, I kind of... A, oh, dear, this is t sounds terrible fence-sitting. Uh, yeah, no, I... I I used to have a friend that said, when you sit on the fence, the fence collapses and everyone gets together. So let's see if we can do that. Um, you know, the ones that really jump out of you do seem to be the ones that break the mold slightly. So the ones that, God, and I don't even know if they're all Marvel or not, but the, the example will do. So you mentioned uh, the, the Spider-Verse one. I, I like Logan, the, the last Wolverine movie. Was there ever a browner movie other than June? It's just two hours of brown backgrounds and <laughs> two people at the end of their their useful, you know, of their what they feel to be their useful lives, you know, just kind of mulling over things. It's beautifully done and it's emotional and it really thinks about it. Sometimes, you know, the the bigger movies can move very fast and you you just don't have an opportunity to. See, you know, one of the things we want to see is a lot more characters, a lot more diverse characters, but. The, the the other side of that is they get introduced so quickly and backstories happen so quick that you can't get any emotional investment with them. You know what I mean? Because it's just happens too quickly. So it's, yeah. you know, it, it, what a, it's a really difficult thing they're trying to do. It'll be interesting to see. Definitely. Yeah. I think the reason Scorsese made the comment that he did is because it kind of feels like Marvel movies are dominating the film industry in a way that doesn't give as much room, you know, to maybe other kinds of films, films more like, you know, Spider-Verse and Logan, you know, that are made by other companies that are made with other intentions. It's kind of like Hollywood is focusing on pushing out all these movies and kind of maybe not focusing as much on classic cinema as we know it. And maybe that's because, like, with streaming and stuff, like, why would people go to a movie theater and watch a movie on a big screen? You need to put a bunch of cool special effects and, like, visuals and, like, all of this action to make mm -hmm. people actually want to see something on a big screen. Maybe that's why Marvel movies are completely dominating. Because the they're more right fun now. to watch uh, in a movie theater? Yeah, I think that might be it. Because you know, I guess, that you're walking in with a bunch of fans. I think that's what they think, at least, you know, <laughs> and that's in itself a, a really good explanation. How do we get people into the cinema? Only by making two and a half hour films, making it a real event. Da, 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 da. But a lot of art cinemas, you know, survive on on the other kinds of films that are being made in in America, independent cinema, and, and across the world. Um, 
And of course, but I think, Emily, again, your point there about the streaming, yeah, I think, you know, is, is exactly the point. We can now see so much great art at home so easily. You know, it looks like Netflix are going to fuck that up in a way, but that's another <laughs> conversation. Given that, how are you going to get me into a cinema? And I think those, the big budget films, you know, it's there with Disney and Star Wars and everybody wants their, everybody wants their piece of the cake on Do this. Do you think that like physically going to movie theaters will ever become a total thing of the past? Um, no, I don't. I, or, or, or as far as I can tell, I don't. I, and the reason I would give for, give for that, we, I mentioned cave paintings, you know, people are still making paintings and going to art galleries. That's been around for a for many years. Right, but people are making paintings not in caves as much as they used to. You know, are people going to... Maybe you don't. Oh, but that's what you do in your free time? Yeah. I need to get on that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, like we watch... We, we, we won't stop. I don't think movies will be a thing of the past. Like, paintings aren't. But maybe going to certain places to do... I mean, it seems like the movie theaters are struggling more than they have historically because of the introduction of streaming. Do you think it's something that will kind of put them back or are we still always going to want to have that kind of like communal experience i think you've just hit the nail on the head there it's communal experience it's been mm -hmm. you know we still we still go to the theater you know theater was invented in greece That's around about 500 500 bc and we you know surely cinema would have killed that yeah it's you know surely because cinema started by filming plays yeah and it was only later when it invented cam camera and editing and you know doing its own thing being able to jump from you know the classic one is to be able to jump from new york to to antarctica and in the flick of an eye you know something so everyone thought cinema would die out but you know photography didn't destroy art uh, didn't destroy painting and we still like sculptures uh, the novels still around you know it might not be on you know it was originally on scrolls and then then it was into codices books and now you know 90 percent of it's on pdfs or or oh, published yeah. on people do not etch in stone like they used to but we still we still write and there are still people who carve i i think your response makes me very optimistic especially with like this oncoming fear of ai and what ai is going to mean for the future of art you know but the fact yeah that no matter how much we've technologically advanced we always do kind of pick certain things to value the novelty of and preserve the integrity of that that does give me a little bit of hope because I like going to the movies. I love going and, you know, talking at the screen with all the other people, like a bunch of strangers and everyone's throwing their popcorn, everyone's laughing together. Like, that's kind of an unmatched experience. And, like, what drives me to go to movie theaters these days is not Wait as minute, much. Hang on, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. What kind of cinemas do you go to where people throw popcorn at each other? Like, <laughs> the Rocky Horror oh, Picture like Show. Oh, oh yeah. 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 college room. Does that really happen? Oh, my word. I, I, I don't even like people having popcorn in the movie. It, <laughs> it, the noise, it's like a, it's like, it's like a thousand uh, troops, of, troops of ants just marching onwards <laughs> throughout the as everyone's munching on their popcorn. This See, is making me want popcorn. I know, right? Like, shouldn't we, we should just, just eat some popcorn into the mic to really just grind your gears. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's an unmatched experience. It's, but it's also, you know, something that gets increasingly expensive and like kind of people are increasingly lazier and more agoraphobic these days. So th that's why I asked. But I do, I do like to think um, 
that it's not going to compromise the future of of movie theaters because I do like movie theaters. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I think you know we've we've seen them almost disappear during when television was invented, and then again in the seventies when television went color. You know, um, and now streaming is the next uh, things. Things dissipate, and then people find new ways to do them, and then that takes off, and there's a back and forth. That's a very florid way of me sort of saying, you know, we just don't know. And and but I, I would like to think everyone's always talking about the death of cinema. Yeah, it's it, it's it's one of the common traits of film theory when you look at it. And it's worth remembering that the Lumieres, when they invented the cinema in 1895, and uh, one of them said, you know, this has no commercial future whatsoever. You know, so, you know, the death of cinema was there at, while it was being born. And yet it still managed to survive. Things do. I was originally going to ask... Um, how do you think the death of monoculture is going to affect the future of movies? But I think instead, I want to say, do you think there ever was a film monoculture to begin with? Uh, yeah, that's that's a really good that's a really good question, and then a really good addendum to the question. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there was, and I think that's you know the idea of monoculture usually is coupled with multiculture. And it, it seems that, you know, particularly in, in places where a monoculture has happened within a culture, yeah, if that culture is diverse, we want multiculturalism. But equally, you know, the idea that, uh, of monoculture, mono, monoculturalism is, is not essentially bad in the sense if we want to preserve, in, for example, indigenous um cultures that want to talk about who they are and their past and who they want to be so so these two things might not be opposed yeah but they they might be more kind of like nested boxes and ways of sharing and maybe multi multiculturalism is a way of thinking about lots of little uh, monocultures that all can you know um where where monoculturalism becomes really problematic is when you get a dominant group excluding the stories of other groups. There's a Starbucks on every continent in every city around the world, you know, and uh, there's the little local coffee shop, got three people sitting in of it, in them. One of them be me on my little laptop, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then and then you know the the Starbucks is packed um, because. This homogeneous. So I think the 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 idea of this monoculture is, uh, is is both what I was trying to allude to really here was that it's more complex than just saying that um, the idea of monoculture is bad, but it is a massive threat on a global scale, and it's a massive threat um, by dominant groups. You know, it's exactly right. Cis yeah, I mean, white male cinema directing store the stories that are told have been a dominant art movement within the cinema. And even if you go to other countries, it will you cross out the white, but it's going to be cis uh, male stories mostly being told. Yeah, um, and we are seeing more diverse stories emerge. My, 
my my fear more is the of the of the of the backlash that we start to see when these diverse stories come out from certain sections of the right wing press and commentators and you know it's that the the idea that there's something even wrong with it like it's a zero-sum game that that if there's more films by indigenous filmmakers it's somehow taking something away when it's cultural rather, it's, adding, it's, it's it's adding to you know there's not a zero-sum game you know we can have more films from more people that to me is is what speaks about about the the idea that there will be no death of cinema because we are, we've only heard from one section of the community rich white men generally you know there's a lot a lot more people who've got stuff to say and when they're allowed more canvas and more uh, more space to say what they've got to say we're going to see I, I my, you know I haven't just I haven't just got the hope that cinema will trundle along you know but, my view might be that we're only at the very beginning of cinema, you know, that this will be yeah. seen as a pre, a weird prehistory of stories by old white men and that the real golden age will arise when we've got more diverse vo voices going forward. I don't, yeah, that's it, I'm going to stick with that. This is the prehistory of cinema. The, the real history is yet to come. I like that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, history isn't, you know, full history if it's not encapsulating the voices of all of the people who are involved in it. So, I mean, we've talked about this on this podcast, how frustrating it is to want content. And we don't see ourselves represented as much as we should with all the years of cinema and television there's been. You know, there's like maybe four shows that feature like a dominant and lesbian, one half good ones, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a really good point. Yeah, just because there is um, stuff being made for certain audiences doesn't actually mean it's any good. You know, yeah, that's why we need much more. Yeah, we need much, 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 much more. You know, so so people can develop these things and you know react against and they can be they can talk to each other you know within the the medium that and the stories that are being told i couldn't agree more what do you think are the kind of stories that are going to emerge out of the collective anxieties of you know our generation or you know the generations of humans you've seen so far like how do you think they're going to manifest i mean you know we've seen different kinds of i think horror movies are pretty good indicators of like, like or what is it video nasties um <laughs> those are great indicators of what some of the collective anxieties of generations are we see what, what, there's a website that actually breaks down like each decade and like the prevalence of certain horror movies based on what's happened historically like zombies were a response yeah I, I told you that zombies Zombie movies or like just like it was movies like like body snatchers just like it was like it was a cold war thing it was like a red scare thing it was right. the fear of communism yeah like you know whatever political anxieties you know the global issues that we see tend to influence what our fears are we see we saw a lot of like black mirror kind of technology based science fiction at the you know peak of you know the beginning of the introduction of social media um I think recently we've been seeing a lot of like alternate reality movies and shows because when we lost, you know, two years of normal living to COVID, people started to consider like what is outside of the box. Now, what do you think um, could come of some of the anxieties that we have today? Uh, just a, just a 
footnote to say that that what you just said there about alternative reality movies is very good. And I like that a lot. Thank Should you. write that up somewhere. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, 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 if 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 I had to say what we'll start to see more of, what you know, what do I think the collective anxieties will give rise to is the crisis, a, a crisis of identity. I think that's the real totally. place yeah. where we're going to see a lot of um, who, and you've already, you, you know, you, these things have a prehistory and an after history, an afterglow, if you like. And we, we've seen a prehistory of these things. I don't know if you've seen the Bob, the Bob Dylan biopic, I'm Not Here by um, Todd Haynes, where you've got five different people playing uh, six different people playing Bob Dylan, who's never alluded to. Um, it, and the stories are set in different times. So one is a, is a little black kid who plays his guitar traveling on a train. Another is Christian Bale as a preacher doing, you know, and they're all playing an aspect of Bob Dylan in some way, shape wow. or form. And it's all intercut and put together in that way. And it's, it's, it's a, who are we? You know, we tend to think that, the way we define a self with with a one capital letter, the word you know, the I. This is who I am. I'm in a steady state from the moment I'm born till the moment I die. Some people think that's going to continue afterwards as well, you know. Um, but a lot of philosophy is all about saying, you know, there is no thing called the self. We are a, a nodal bunch of drives, mostly unconscious. This comes out of Freud and Nietzsche. And, you know, w what identity is, is, is all about trying to, to fasten down and s grab on and get some control and mastery over this chaos that each of us is. You know, we are a chaos, a bundle of drives. We don't know why we do half the things we do. And then we make excuses or retroactively say why we did these things. Um, and how that really is playing into the modern anxieties is everyone is really concerned with the notion of identity, of who am I and how I can identify myself and people recognising my identity. When it's taken from a progressive point of view, I think it's all well and good, but now you've got sort of like this idea of identity politics being picked up by the right wing and run with by white supremacists. And it's kind of, it's kind of in a sense, shown the real problem with identity. Who would have, you know, when I was started out teaching film theory, the cutting edge was feminist film theory, yeah? Who would have thought we would have been now in a place where feminism is a bit on a bit of a back foot with the, with the trans community? You know, the very people that we're sort of looking to being at the cutting edge of progressive politics, yeah? You're never going to be at the cutting edge ever. And the idea of identities and fragmenting identities, I think, is going to be is going to be seen in films more and more and more and more. Who am I? Yeah. Who are we? Where are we going? Those kind of questions. What What is your favorite movie? What is your favorite movie and why? Right. Okay. That's that. What an unfair question. Right. <laughs> I know. I hate the question too, but you kind of have to answer it. Well, you mentioned you were going to ask me this, and I thought, well, it's, it's part of the contract, so yes, I have got to answer it. And you know, it's how do you answer? I, there was, um, if I had to say the film that I could recite lines from that I've watched many, many times is a film called With Nail and I, which is a which is a brilliant comedy about the end of the sixties, two out of work actors 
who got on holiday by mistake. And it's funny and it's clever and it's sad. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful film. So and I was reading an article about, um, about somebody that watched Groundhog Day for a year. They watched the film every day for a year, starting on the day where it's made. To, to experience Groundhog Day from the perspective of the person who was in wow. Groundhog Day, yeah? That's, oh. that's Yeah, yeah. anyway, it's a great article. It's a short one. It was in The Guardian a couple of days ago. But he mentioned a, a theorist called Barbara Klinger who, who talked about karaoke cinema, the, the films that we love. that we. So I'd ask that. Is, is there a film that you can quote big chunks out of either of you two? Um, not, well, not my favourite movie, um, I'm about to ask you your opinion on my favorite movie, but I think the movie that I can quote the most out of just because I've seen it so many times is Spaceballs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've seen it like 15 times. And I think I could quote entire scenes from it. But my, there we my... go. Carry on. That, but so that's that's one thing, right? So that's not a favorite movie. So what is your favorite movie? I need to ask you your opinion on my favorite movie, the best movie ever made, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Wow, what a film! Um, <laughs> I mean, I rewatched it, and it is just to me. It seemed to me like an explosion of youthfulness. I mean, we were talking about like an explosion of drives, contrary drives. Uh, you know, we tend to look at, uh, at characters in a film as being individual sentient beings who are all interacting at the level of story. Yeah, we've talked a lot about stories here. But to, but to me, that's, you know, sometimes, you know, characters are forces, are drives, are, are, are collisions, are, you know, they don't need always to be real people with a backstory, you know? And it seemed to me that that film is, a, is it, oh, it's an explosion of color and drugs. It's youthful. I mean, if it's an untimely film. You watch it now, and it, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, some people say, "Oh, I watch it now. It, it, it's you know, it's got an eternal quality to it, in the sense of something polished and classical." But there's also the untimely film. No matter when it was made, it's problematic. Totally. Oh yeah. That's one of. I, yeah, I think, and it's and funny. No matter because... when it was, it will always be problematic. I think, like, especially with a lot of... There's a there's definitely a queer theme to that movie, as there is... Because it's the, so, like, it's so ridiculous that it's kind of gay. Also, there but, are And also, there are, there are gay... It. Yeah, and, and you know, there, we have, like... And the, he, the, the guy is kind of... Like a cross-dresser. Yeah. Yeah, we actually have, an inspiration for, uh, for Frank and Fur. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there, I think in a lot of cult classic kind of queer films, uh, like Rocky Horror, like Beyond the Valley, all of those, there is like kind of like a demonization of like queerness, but it's in such a fun, like like you said, youthful, vibrant way that like, you know, and queer people are, are so used to being demonized by media. So when it's in a fun, playful way, it's like we can get on board with that. There's like a lot of talk about queer coding and villains and like, you know, like the villain in the Powerpuff Girls was like a cross-dresser or Ursula was based on the drag queen divine. Like there's a lot of discussion about, you know, why, and, and yet we we gravitate towards those characters. My favorite characters in movies when I was little were always the like gay kind of villains. Uh, and it just like, you know, even though it maybe was meant to villainize queer people, we've kind of reclaimed that and been able to appreciate it. But it is definitely problematic in every era that it exists. And it's so awesome reason. and I love it. I, just, I like that. It has that. everything yeah. you could want from a movie. <laughs>
Best soundtrack ever. Beautiful. Oh, Beautiful oh, that, now, yes, soundtrack. I mean, The Kelly Affair, I'd buy their album, wouldn't you? Oh, 100%. I listen to those songs every day. Like, this is the <laughs> best movie soundtrack ever. I was just I was just reminded of this. It's a little bit of Nietzsche, and he it's in a book called Dawn. It's my favourite book, and he talks about the need for little deviant acts, and he goes, um, buh, 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 "Where do we go?" Uh, Thus, a person takes his child for Christian baptism, though he is an atheist, and that person serves in the army as all the world does, however much they may have. They may hate hatred between nation, nations. And a third marries his wife in church because of relatives. It doesn't really matter, people say. But, but for Nietzsche, he goes on to say, nothing matters more than this already. What we need are little deviant acts. And it seems to me the best cinema are little deviant acts. They're little acts that, that do not go with the norms, that do kind of upset the way in which we think that, are, that thus then cause us to think, you know, and, and you were mentioning how, you know, queer coding could be used on villains and all of this, that, and the other, um, and it might be unconsciously done by, by the filmmakers and, but, but it still appears there and it still becomes a way of thinking and, it, and then can be picked up as an affirmation as you were talking about. And it seems to me that film is, oh, and look, any film that starts with, a man dressed as a, su a female superhero killing a Nazi on a beach has got to be a good film, right? That's what I'm saying. Just, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was wonderful. And it just seemed to me, if ever there was a, a film of lit that you could call a little deviant act, I often think that we always we tend to judge films by what happens at the very end rather than what's going on continually throughout the film. It's like, you know somebody dying on their deathbed, you're only counting what they did in the last week, yeah, rather than what they've done throughout <laughs> the whole lives. It's like, you know, who would, who would judge a pop song on the fade-out, you know? It's, 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 you know? it's the music that's happening, it's the intro, it's the choruses, it's the, the way in which it's happening. And that, you know, if, if ever there was a pop song of a film, it is Beyond Valley of the Dolls. So. <laughs> thank you for reacquainting. Thank you for reacquainting it with me. <laughs> I suppose, it, you know, we talked about... This. So the film that I, I love, I thought about, you know, the film that got me started in thinking about cinema, and that was David Lynch's Blue Velvet. That's another de devi little deviant act, isn't it? And um, Or the, own, the film that I only ever... The moment it stopped watching it, I went and watched it again. That was Moulin Rouge, which is just a film I still adore. But um, so my, my favourite film is... A, at the moment, I'll say, is a film from the 1950s called Harvey, an American film, about a, about a, a, a man who's going to get committed to a, a lunatic asylum by his sister because his best friend is a six-foot, three-and-a-half-inch invisible rabbit uh, called that Harvey. That sounds awesome. Uh, and it's, 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 it's a puka from Celtic myth. Um, but what the film, uh, do you know what? I've seen it so many times, and when I haven't watched it for a while, I'll, I'll think back. Does the rabbit actually appear in the film? And I, I, I've come convinced it does, and I rewatch it, and I realize it doesn't. Wow. So you became him a little bit, huh? The camera moves around and focuses on empty space when people talk to the rabbit. It, and 
but it seems to me that, and there's little moments when a drunk character, for instance, is talking to the rabbit and the doors open by themselves. Now, is that the real objective world? Or is it a world that is just filtered through the drunken state of that character? And it's the undecidability. And to me, it speaks to, to me what the, the diff, if you like, the difference between science and art, right? Science is the search for truth and it divides truth from falsity. That's the, the aim. Whereas art, art is specifically about making truth out of lies. It's, it's a, you know, no story, even a biography, is true to the very nth, you know. If we, have a, if we have a biopic of Anne Frank, we don't get a whole of her life. We don't get every shit she ever had, yeah? What we get is a, is a way of framing it. Every, an art is about making truth out of lies. It's the... It's a, um, Gilles Deleuze, who I talked about at the beginning, calls it the power of the false. The idea that we can get truth, generate, and it destroys both the concepts of truth and lies. Just becomes a way of thinking and creating an atmosphere for thought. And it seems to me that film captures it exactly. That idea of does the rabbit exist or not? Because no one really knows, and everyone is it. It's just his imagination. He's so convinced. Anyway, it's a comedy, and it's beautiful, and it's the sweetest film you could imagine. And it's just Phil James Stewart's in it, and uh, Josephine Hull as his as his little sister, and oh. But yeah, so thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, is there any like direction you'd want us to point some of our listeners to to get to know you a little bit better, your work, stuff you're you're into right now? Yeah, sure. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me on. Um, I've enjoyed this immensely. It was great. To, you know, you gave me some homework with watching Beyond Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> you know. Sometimes, you know, you need to have things cool to your memory. And it's, it's really made me think about the idea of cinema as a little deviant axe. So, yeah, that's great. I mean, if anybody wants to know a bit about my work, I've got a website. It's um, daviddema.com, simple as that. If you search David Dema Cinema, and um, there's links to, you know, if anyone's interested, um, to a, a lot of my essays, which are available for free. Um, the books however you have to go into a shop unless you can find what sneaky ways to download them which do <laughs> exist well on that note thank you all so much for listening yes you can follow us at what's going to happen pod on instagram or at wgh pod on twitter and from the 76th installment of the marvel x doctor who collab complete with merch and a section in disney world <laughs> this has been what's going to happen what's going to happen